Welcome to Social Workers Break Room. This is Imelda. And I'm Jennifer. And today we bring you social workers as activists and advocates. We're losing it. Stay with us. We have already talked a little bit about tire protection and our involvement with the Women's March um, here in Phoenix and some ways that you can get involved. But due to popular demand, we also wanted to unpack a little bit more of activism. Um, we have received some messages about you know people interested in getting involved at a larger level in their communities and ways that they could do that. So we want to share a little bit about our experience with boards and other um, gratitude movements and in our communities. And hopefully um, that inspires you to do something similar. Um, we wanted to start sharing uh, local politics. You know, one of the ways that you can get involved as a social worker in activism and advocacy is local politics um, in, in your state, in your community, in your city, in your neighborhood, and in your school. Here in Arizona, we have lots of social workers on the school boards, board of county supervisors, house of representatives, and other state offices. They bring a unique perspective to their elected office since most of them have worked directly with their communities in direct practice or in other community setting, and they know how decisions made at the higher level trickle down and impact their communities directly. Um, so one way, one great way to get involved in advocacy is to run for office. I know it sounds a little intimidating, but um, there are organizations across the country that focus on training and supporting the next generation of candidates like you and their campaign staff. So a like lot of these, also you, like also you. Yeah. So a lot of these trainings are not just focused on, um, on people who want to run themselves, but also people who support them. So if you have a friend or someone in your close circle that has said they want to run for office eventually, um, social workers make great campaign managers. We have had a few of our close friends here in, yeah. in Arizona who are campaign managers and they're social workers and they bring an amazing perspective to, to the campaign. So some of these organizations or groups that help train and, and, and lead new up-and-coming candidates in the next generation of leaders are like Emerge, The Arena, and New American Leaders. Um, and we're adding the links to these organizations and these groups on our website. But um, I, I have personally gone through both Emerge and New American Leaders, and I had an amazing experience. I highly recommend some of these programs if you're thinking or planning on running for office within the next few years. They give you solid tools on um, how to uh, create your personal statements, you know, your um, presence on social media, you know, do's and don'ts, and how to select your team, fundraising, etc. So the links to these programs are on our website, socialworkersbreakroom.com, under the notes for this episode. Um, you know, we could talk about candidates and elections for a long time, but um, we, we just wanted to also make sure that we include in this episode that one of the ways that you can make change is to run for office. So, you know, we, we highly encourage more social workers to, to run for these positions. We need more people in these leadership positions uh, who are social workers and who understand our communities the way social workers do. 
Definitely. And like Amelda said, there's lots of different ways to get involved. So even if you're not ready to run, one tip, regardless of how you choose to be involved, is to be clear with your employer how and when you should and can represent yourself. So some employers are fine with being named um, as supporting certain causes or candidates. Some will only allow it with board approval. And some say never. Always safest to assume never. So what is typically safe is using your name. You know, that is sometimes tied to your employer in some ways. Keeping it clear, you know, your title is a social worker. Um, not using a title that's specifically maybe only used at your agency, um, but just saying social worker. If you have a BSW or MSW, that's one thing that regardless of employer you take with you. And then I, not identifying your employer. So not just saying, you know, hi, my name is Jennifer and I work for blank, but also being smart about it. If you show up to speak at a meeting, make sure you're not wearing a badge, make sure you're not wearing your uniform. Um, if somebody asks for your business card, you know, making sure you're not giving out the business card that says your company on it. And then also being careful where you identify your employer, because if I come up and I say that, you know, I'm Jennifer and then someone goes and looks me up on Facebook or LinkedIn, it might say my employer on there. So being mindful of that and knowing where you have it listed. Some employers may also want you to put a statement that you've probably seen in other people's bios um, or intros that say all opinions posted are solely my own um, or something to that effect on your profile. Or like tweets are not endorsements or... Um, yeah, there are different ways to make that clarification that your personal opinions are not the opinions of your employer. Definitely. Another great way to also get involved in the community, like Jennifer said, even if you're not ready to run for office or be involved in, in you know, this, this larger groups. Another way that it's very effective is to support candidates and encourage endorsements for those candidates, um, especially those that align with social work values. Um, and I say this because NASW has a committee that is focused on endorsing and supporting candidates that can carry the social work mission. Some of you might not, may or might not be familiar with the PACE committee um, under NASW. So PACE stands for Political Action for Candidate Election. And this is a committee that gets together every two years or whenever there's an uh, election cycle. And they work closely with candidates who are seeking endorsement from NASW. At the national level, NASW endorses all federal level candidates, including candidates for presidential elections and congressional candidates as well. But the state chapter of NASW, um, most state chapters have a PACE committee and they work with statewide candidates, legislative, um, you know, all, I mean, all, all kinds of uh, the different levels of state level candidates who are running in that state. I, I personally have had the opportunity to be the chair of the PACE committee here in Arizona since 2016. Um, so I have done 2016, 2018, and this is my third election cycle and this wow. will be the last one because uh, my term is coming to an end after it's like a four-year term so it's coming to an end and right now I'm um, I have a chair elect who I'm training to take over after I'm done after mm. these elections um, and it's a it's actually a, a pretty fun process to be honest with you because uh, you get to create the full questionnaire that the, the candidates have to answer so all questions are based on values that NASW has and values that the social work profession stands on. And so we ask questions to candidates, you know, regarding those issues, especially issues that affect our community, our local communities. Uh, we are a 
border state. So some of the questions that we ask our candidates are uh, their position um, regarding family separation at the border. Mm-hmm. Um, so after we received the their answers, uh, we score them, review their answers with the committee, and then the board, uh, the committee makes formal elections on who to, to, to endorse publicly. Um, and this is actually uh, an endorsement that a lot of candidates here here in Arizona, they seek and they reach out to an ASW because um, they value the endorsement of social workers, um, especially those candidates who work closely in the community and they understand the value of having social workers on you know on their side. So one way you can get involved is if you are a member of NASW, you can reach out to your local chapter and see how you can get involved with their PACE committee and take an active role in the vetting and endorsement process for candidates in your state. Another way to be involved also is a city council. You know, we'll have a city council uh, of some sorts where we live. And this is, um, you know, we always say that elections at the you know federal and national level are important but the local ones are even more important being involved yeah being involved in your city your uh, school board uh, neighborhood associations these are all super important because these are where a lot of the decisions that affect your life your daily life are made for example you know most city councils have a city budget or all of them have a city budget. And if you choose to do one thing this year is to attend a city council budget hearing. Um, meetings are usually public and meeting information is usually listed on the website for for the city, um, the city council website and are open to the public. And because of COVID and because of, you know, how Things are changing. Um, a lot of these meetings are now virtual. So you can attend. Um, they, they broadcasted on their website and even sometimes like on their Facebook, mm-hmm. some cities. So this is an easy way for you to learn, you know, just sit through the meeting and listen to the meeting and learn what's happening in your city. And we talk about the budget, city budget, because this is so, so, so important because this is where um, decisions are being made on how... The money is going to be spent in your city. You know, the the budget will be spent on everything from police to social services to potential new additions like, you know, parks and library social workers. Um, We have talked about library social work sometimes, you know, through some episodes and how important it, it, it is to have not only libraries that are functional, but also the how these are community hubs that people go to and having a social worker will be super effective. So I worked in city council for some time and, you know, just hearing some of the conversations that happen around the city budget, we often don't think all the things that are part of the city budget, like Head Start programs mm-hmm. and early Head Start and all that money comes from the city budget. And so being... Being present and being an advocate and, you know, requesting to speak even at those meetings yeah. uh, on behalf of some of the line items that are going to be the decisions that are going to happen during the budget um, on what services are going to be funded and or what services are going to lose funding. Yeah. It's it's extremely important. Jennifer has also attended quite a few city council meetings. Oh, yeah. Spoken quite a few times. 
And with, you know, the city budget, it runs a little bit different than your normal city council meeting. You know, your normal council meeting will have tons of agenda items on it typically, especially, you know, depending on the size of your city. So often the entire conversation around the budget is held outside normal city council meeting hours. Um, So understanding where they are and how they're taking comment. Um, A lot of them have like a very low threshold for accessibility on that where you can just submit comments online. Um, The city of Phoenix, for example, this year had a tool where you could, you know, you basically had a pie chart and you could drag and appropriate money so that they could take that as, you know, general feedback from the public. Or again, like Imelda said, speaking at those meetings, those budget hearings, providing public comment, meeting with your council people one-on-one to provide that feedback. So if you have a low bandwidth but want to get involved, being involved again in the public comment or attending the budget hearings for a city can make a year-long impact on where your tax dollars are spent. There are so many occasions, you know, that Imelda and I have either been a part of or heard of where there's a very particular grant or a very particular program. And often it was started because one person kept showing up and demanding it or one small group of people kept showing up and saying, we need this. This is essential. Another thing that often happens at a city level is going to be zoning boards. So I'm really passionate about land zoning because nothing happens without place. And a sense of place is crucial to culture and development of communities and their prosperity. So in some cities that are large, like for example, Phoenix, the city council doesn't have the ability or the time to do a really good review of each unique neighborhood and its needs. So to understand zoning cases through that lens. So for example, here, they split the city of Phoenix into villages who have their own little zoning board, of which I'm the vice chair of one. Um, Other cities, you'll notice it goes directly to the city council. Other cities have a process with some public components through their urban planning department or through notification of neighbors within a certain range of the property. You know, it can be as small as 500 feet. It can be as big as several miles. And then some cities have a really unique process like the Alderman in Chicago. So getting to know your city's process on who makes decisions about land and knowing how you can get involved. Land affects displacement, gentrification, resegregation, food apartheid, and housing and job access, which we all know are critical to the safety and positive development of humans. So not just you, but your clients, your family, and for generations to come. Because oftentimes when someone holds that land or builds on it, it's going to be there for quite some time. So making sure that when a decision is made, our people thinking about who would be displaced, who doesn't have access, who's not in the room right now to make this decision. And like I said, who knows, uh, maybe you'll end up on a zoning board like me where I've served uh, for almost four years and two communities now. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And the work that you guys have done with uh, with those groups, it's very impactful. That's great. Thanks. Um, another one of the easiest ways that you can get involved in in the community and community work um, is to join a board. And, you know, sometimes we, we often hear, uh, you know, like the board of, of, of this organization, of that organization, but some people don't know what comes with joining a board or what the process is to join a board. Right. Um, most nonprofits or committees or even alumni chapters from your from your university, grassroots organizations, they all have a board or a council that informs their decision making. So these are people that come from all different backgrounds who have a maybe like a special interest or a special skill or a special point of view um, that can sit together and, and inform how decisions are being made on those nonprofits and, and committees and, and grassroots organizations. So uh, most 
board positions have similar requirements and responsibilities. So always make sure that the expectations and responsibilities are clear from the beginning. If you're thinking of either applying for, for a board position or someone recruited you to sit on a board, that happens often. All the time. Um, yeah. Once you start getting involved with one thing, it's kind of like a snowball effect. Um, you know, the more people that you know and the people will notice like, oh, you know, Jennifer is interested in this specific issue in our communities well why don't we invite her to sit on our board for you know this community organization so you know this is where creating boundaries comes very effective because you know I at least myself I always tend to say yes to everything I'm invited to um, and I have to be better at you know doing a little bit of my research and be like okay what's the time commitment that it takes uh, what's required of me and and see if this is something that aligns with you know, my, my work, my other responsibilities. So always make sure that the expectations and responsibilities are clear from the beginning. So you can make the decision if this is something that you would like to focus your energy on. So some questions to ask during your board interview, you know, most, most boards, um, they either bring you on to do like a a group interview where Mm -hmm. you, they invite you at one of their board meetings and someone introduces you and you give, you know, a a few minutes speech about yourself and why you're interested in joining the board. And this is a chance for you to also ask questions. Um, you know, whether application processes, if it's just more informal where, you know, it's just like a one-on-one meeting or inviting you to their board meeting and that's it and they make the decision. Or some other boards have a more intensive application process where you have to fill out a um, an application, like an actual application submitted. Writing samples, yeah. background checks. Right. And, you know, have lawyers have recommendation. It depends. I think it depends on, on the level of, of the board, if it's a, a large organization and your community, the process might be more formal. But if it's more of a grassroots committee, the process might be not as intensive. But always make sure that you ask for term limits. So if it's, you know, uh, two years or four years, uh, most board members either sign some type of agreement mm-hmm. when they join and you are responsible for executing the the responsibilities on that agreement unless you know something happens but I say most most of the boards that I've been part of uh, they have like a two-year mm-hmm. term um, and then after two years you can either like reapply for the same position or that's it you know expires and they move people around just to have you know a fresh perspective a big one is time commitment so are the meetings monthly weekly, bi-weekly, quarterly, um, and how long the meetings are. Are the meetings mm-hmm. an hour, two hours? Sometimes um, I've been I've been in some meetings that they have, you know, monthly meetings, but then every quarter they have a retreat. And the retreat is a whole Saturday or at least half of the day to do with like strategic planning and whatnot. So always ask what the time commitment is to make sure that it's something that it's doable and that it fits into your schedule. And something important that sometimes I feel like people don't talk about it that much is the give or get commitment. Yep. A lot of boards and people when they join and then they after, you know, after they join and they're excited and they tell them like, oh yeah, so here's your plan for, what, what's your plan for fundraising the thousand dollars that um, are part of the give and get commitment for this board? And you're mm-hmm. like, what? Like, well, I didn't know I had to do that. So not all boards have a financial responsibility, but 
I feel like the majority of them are. Yeah, most of them do. So not only are you volunteering your time, but also typically you're expected to be part of the fundraising efforts. Right. So give or get means that you either give from your pocket the amount of money that it's that is required. Let's say some boards are like as little as like two hundred dollars, mm-hmm. um, or that you are committing to get someone else to fundraise or you know have someone else donate that money on your behalf. So larger boards sometimes have you know the, the larger the organization, the larger the the, the commitment the check you're gonna the need. Check they're gonna need, but some other boards or committees might not have such a big ask from you, but always, always ask, you know, if they have a give or get commitment and what you're responsible for. So there are no surprises. And as uh, Jennifer had mentioned, always check with your employer if there are any conflict of interest, um, especially if this is a political organization, a politically involved organization, um, always make sure that your employer is okay with you being part of, of, of this board, of this organization, this committee, um, and there are no conflict of interest uh, with them. And since we're talking about political parties and caucuses, yes. you know, now that we have seen an increase of social workers being active in elections and and being involved in campaigns and and political parties um is it's something to to be mindful as well that you know if you're involved with a special political party to check with your supervisor your employer what their guidelines are Mm -hmm. like jennifer mentioned so if you're not ready to be directly involved you know in some of the other ways that we have share our code of ethics calls for us to be involved politically. Um, and sometimes we don't, we don't talk about this uh, very often, but it does. Our code of ethics calls for, for us to be advocates for the people that we serve. So volunteering through your local party office, uh, it could be the state, county, city, district-wide, or a specific caucus. Um, some, some states have like a social work caucus or education caucus. If you are, you know, school social worker, you can join that one. You know, these caucuses have a specific tie to to a group, a population in the community. You know, it could be the Black or the Hispanic caucus or teachers or nurses. Um, I think we, did we talk about the social work caucus that we? Not in detail uh, enough. We'll have to loop back on that one. Yeah. Jennifer and I were part of starting like the social work caucus here in Arizona. So, and that has been a lot of fun. But, you know, these are just some examples of different ways that you can get involved as a volunteer in your local political party. You know, you might also choose particular candidates who share yours or your social work values and 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 you can volunteer with them. Jennifer and I have done everything from phone and text banking to um, getting signatures for ballots to sharing, you know, doing lit drops for candidates just in an effort to get people that we believe in support, get them elected. Um, also, just general campaigns to encourage people to get out to vote and register to vote. Mm -hmm. So this is particularly important because once you volunteer with a candidate, you can also hold them accountable when they are in office. You know, once your candidate wins and they are in office, you can also remind them and hold them accountable for all the things that they said that we're going to do to support the community and, and, you know, the, the issues that, 
that you believe in. Also, if you speak a language other than English, um, you might want to get involved with your local party to, or, you know, legislative district or neighborhood association as an outreach person. You know, if you speak a, a, a different language or a second language or a third language, you can be very useful in reaching out to to your community and making sure that their communication, their social media, their outreach material is in the language that is accessible for all members of the community. I have worked with the local county Democratic Party as a Latinx outreach, and I often do like Spanish outreach and help with Spanish social media content. And I feel like I'm an active member of making sure that the information shared uh, reaches all members of, of my community, um, not only, you know, those who speak English. Which is awesome. So if all that sounds out of your element, which as social workers who understand the person environment perspective, I can assure you that getting involved politically is not out of your element. But another place you can start is your local licensing board. So this should be a place where maybe you feel more of a sense of expertise. A lot of what we talked about, you know, with zoning committees and budget hearings, it often doesn't feel inherent to our skill set. But again, we encourage you to flex and try because I promise you'll find something that touches a part of you that it really resonates and feels like you have and can stand your ground on issues. But one place you may feel more of a sense of expertise is those boards because they're regulating your profession or potentially professionally similar ones. So boards make decisions on everything from who gets to call themselves a social worker, like title protection, how much it costs to be licensed, under what circumstances is a license removed or put on a behavior improvement plan, how many days you have to document, can you see people from another state, who gets to supervise, what counts towards an LCSW or your other terminal licensure, and so much more. So all that to say, for most of us, it's going to very directly impact your life. Um, And these are things you're frequently living every day. And you as a person, you know, with a license or who wants to get a license, getting involved will have a direct impact on your future. So one of the places to start is understanding who is on your board. So a lot of boards, like Amel just said, will have some folks that are either appointed or elected. And then because there's a lot of paperwork, processing, money being handled, people being held accountable, there's also often an employed staff as well with your you know, Board of Behavioral Health or Board of Social Work or Office of the Professions or whatever your state chooses to call it. So understanding who's elected and appointed and then who's employed and how much power each person has is a great place to start if you don't know where. Then you may find in your community or state that there are certain things that are either going really well and you want them to keep happening. And sometimes some of the things that we love that are going on, they're not guaranteed. So making sure that things continue to happen that you find helpful for the profession or for your work. Or you'll probably identify lots of things that you think need to change. So in the title protection episode, we talked a lot about how our board and state law are really inherently connected. Another example I'll point out today is under the definition of direct client services, our board used to only count therapy services rendered in person as direct client contact towards your LCSW. As of yesterday, (laughs) the board has decided to interpret their rule to also include video sessions, uh, which is a huge leap forward, not only now during a pandemic, but an investment in providing high quality and accessible services services for all. This is a, a big deal. This is wonderful. This is like, a this huge is, deal. Yeah. So if that's, you know, not something that your state does, you know, when I was trying to do a little bit of research when I was uh, 
trying to convince Arizona to move forward. I found, you know, at least 20 states that did it, but I also found almost an equal amount of states that said absolutely not. Telephone and video are not therapy. So as we're living through a pandemic and technology becomes more and more accessible towards agencies and the individuals they serve, that might be a place you start. Does my board count hours rendered via video with a client in psychotherapy towards my LCSW or towards my LASW or LSW or LICSW or whatever alphabet soup your state recognizes. (laughs) But if you're wondering where to start, that might be a place. So another thing is we've talked a lot about nonprofits or about cities, counties, or states, kind of looking at things a little bit broader. So a lot of places don't have large nonprofits. They'll often put boards together to decide how to spend money. So cities may decide once a year, a state may put together special interest groups by their governor to spend certain grants. One example that I'll give today is SABG grant. So the SABG grant is a substance abuse block grant. Um, A lot of you may be familiar with it. So it's given by SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration. And it provides funding for the grant in all 50 states, you know, including Washington, D.C., the Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico. So everyone, as long as you are in the United States, your state has the SABG grant. So do you understand how your state spends it? And who decides that? And who is in that room and who's not in that room? Mm -hmm. And how is success measured on those? And how often is it evaluated? Um, Because all the applications and results go to SAMHSA, they're all in the same format. So if you Google your state and SABG, you should be able to find their report that went to SAMHSA for 2020, 2020, 2021 proposals, and then their 2021 proposal for next year. So kind of their transition plan. What does that report show for Arizona? So um, in Arizona, uh, what we've done the last couple years and are planning on continuing to do it, we largely give our bucket of money to two really large nonprofits here who have all levels of substance abuse treatment throughout the state. And the grant ensures that people, regardless of insurance, funds, or immigration status, can receive services for substance use treatment. Alternatively, I used to run a facility in Kentucky, Hmm. and we used it totally differently there. So the state used the substance abuse block grant to expand needle exchange programs, which are not yet legal in Arizona, but here is, you know, the state of Kentucky spending some of their federal money to make sure that people have access to clean syringes and prevent disease. That's awesome. We'll get there. Um, (laughs) Eventually, yeah. They also use it to provide special treatment for pregnant folks who are using substances, and they used a lot of their money this last year to expand peer support programs for people who are seriously mentally ill or SMI. All this to say that people made those decisions and your clients are often directly affected by them. So if this is not a publicly decided board, uh, then usually there's still a public comment period. For example, the state of Kentucky right now still has up on their website, submit your comments for the 2021 SABG grant. So Because these are your clients and the services they access or need to access, they're also things that affect you and your work. Is your current program funded by the SABG or another grant? Mm -hmm. Are you making sure that it stays in place, that the metrics are meant? So who is making these decisions for everything we talked about today? And why not you? Yep. So we say that because advocacy and activism can feel overwhelming and to add one more thing to your plate. But as we've listed some options here, hopefully you have a better idea of the accessibility and that some can be a commitment that's as little as an hour a month or one time a year, Mm -hmm. like for your block grant or for your city budget comment period. 
The important thing is to start somewhere. So we challenge you to choose one thing to get involved with and make a plan to make it happen. Yeah. And as always, we love hearing from you and we're excited to hear what you are already doing and what you'll choose to do. So reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, on our website. And also all of the resources that we talked about, they are listed um, on our website under our episode. As always. And don't forget to vote. Please. Please do it today. Please. If you're not on the permanent early voting list, do that if your state has it. (laughs) And we'll see you next time.